Oh God, we pray this morning, Lord, you would do a work in each of our hearts, Father. As we turn to your word, your Holy Spirit would bring it alive to us, that we would hear what your Spirit is speaking. For each one of us, we need to hear from you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So this morning, I want to speak about God's providential hand at work in the book of Esther. And this is part one, the rise of Haman. The word providence in English means timely preparation for future eventualities, the foreseeing care and guidance of God, especially conceived as omnisciently directing the universe and the affairs of mankind with wise benevolence. A manifestation of divine care or direction. And so when we study the book of Esther, we're going to see God's providence. Providence can be seen as God's unforeseen hand working behind the scenes, being manifest in what appears to be coincidence or random chance that brings about God's purposes. A skeptic will never see the miraculous, only unexplained events. However, a committed follower of Jesus will have confidence that God is weaving the circumstances of his or her life together to bring forth God's glory and purposes. And so, if you even ha- we've had people who've been healed and even had medical confirmation of supernatural healings. But if I go to a person who's a skeptic and I say, here is a person who was healed after prayer, here is medical proof that they're saying this is miraculous, they will still not see it as a miracle. They'll just say, well, something happened and there must be an explanation. But when we are followers of Jesus, we will look and believe that the Holy Spirit is behind the scenes working even when we don't see it. As followers of Jesus, we cannot successfully maintain a life filled with unshakable confidence, thanksgiving, and joy unless we're able to look past the circumstances of life that confront us and see with eyes of faith the Holy Spirit at work behind the scenes. When things happen in your life that appear to be difficult or painful, and if you don't believe in God's providential hand at work, you will grow discouraged or bitter or angry. But if you say, God, I don't know why you've allowed this, and I don't know exactly what you're doing, but I am choosing to trust you, that's when you can have peace and thanksgiving in your hearts. Trusting in God's sovereignty and providence enables us to deal with the uncertainties of life. Trusting in God's sovereignty and providence enables us to deal with the uncertainties of life. Life is filled with many uncertainties. But if we say that God is in control, God is working on my behalf for his glory. John 10.4, John 10.4, And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. God has promised us that not only will he never leave us nor forsake us, but that he actually goes before us and prepares the way. This describes God's divine providence. He goes before them and the sheep follow him. Leading is God's part. Following him is our part. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his love toward us and while that we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus' death on the cross was an act of God's divine providence. Before we were even born, Jesus died for us so we could be saved and redeemed. Jesus died before any of us were born. 
thousands of years before. He died for us because God saw the need and through providence prepared for the need that we each would have, which is salvation. Deuteronomy 1, 29 and 30. Then I say to you, do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. God revealed himself to Israel as the God who went before them to prepare the way. This revelation should produce a deep sense of confidence, security, and peace in our hearts. This verse actually could be one of the defining verses to describe the book of Esther, the God who goes before and fights our battles. For the Jews to be gathered back into the land of Israel after being scattered throughout the nations for almost two millennia is an act of God's foreknowledge and providence. The amazing thing that it looked like the Jews would never ever come back together in the land of Israel, never. They'd been scattered, they'd been persecuted, but God's word said that he would do it. And God weaved all the events of history to bring that about in 1948. The book of Esther, how many people have actually read the book of Esther? Could you put your hand up? Okay, so many of you have. So when I do part two, it might be good if you want to come back next week and hear the rest of it. Read the book of Esther, it's only nine chapters. But I'll just give a, a, there's four main characters in the book of Esther. First, there is Esther, a young, beautiful Jewess whose parents had died. Mordecai, Esther's uncle and guardian. King Azarias, an absolute monarch of the Persian Empire who was unpredictable and hot-tempered. And Haman, an Agagite, who became King Azarias' most powerful noble, who hated the Jews and plotted to completely annihilate the Jewish nation. The story develops as one day the king gets upset with his queen and he, over a petty thing he, he gets rid of her, says, I don't want to see you anymore. And Esther is chosen to be queen in her place. Also we see that Haman becomes infuriated with Mordecai because Mordecai the Jew refused to bow down to Haman. Haman doesn't realize that Mordecai is actually Esther's uncle, the queen. And, and also then Haman plots not only to destroy Mordecai, but the entire Jewish population. But through a series of events, God uses Esther and Mordecai to deliver Israel and to vanquish and destroy their enemies. So that's basically a little bit of a snapshot. So let's look at a little bit historical. Let's review the historical context of the book of Esther to better understand the setting in which the story took place. The events of the book of Esther took place between 478 BC and 473 BC, a five-year period. The Jews, because of their many years of rebellion against God, were conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar and carried into Babylon by the Babylonians um, some 140 years prior to the events described in the book of Esther. So the Babylonian captivity started 140 years prior to the book of Esther. The captivity of the Jews in Babylon ended 60 years prior to the events in the book of Esther. All the Jews were free to leave Babylon and return back to the land of Israel. 
the reconstruction of the temple in Jerusalem took place 40 years prior to the events in the book of Esther. Ezra, the priest, left Babylon and returned to Jerusalem about 20 years after the book of Esther to teach the people God's laws, commandments, and statutes as recorded in the book of Ezra. Nehemiah left Babylon and returned to Israel and became governor about 30 years after the book of Esther. He rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem and strengthened the people in their commitment to God as recorded in the book of Nehemiah. So now we have a time frame for when the book of Ezra took place both historically and according to the books of the Bible. Ezra was pro- uh, Esther was probably younger than 20 years of age at the beginning of the story. She might have been as young as t- 16. Mordecai, Esther's uncle, might have been in his mid-40s. Mordecai's great-grandfather, Kish, had been carried away as a captive into Babylon. Mordecai himself was born in Babylon. Mordecai was a child of the captivity. Mordecai had heard about the land of Israel, but he had never lived, but he had lived his entire life in Babylon. The question that arises is this. If the Jews were allowed to return to the land of Israel some 60 years prior to the events that took place in the book of Esther, why did Mordecai, Esther, and the rest of the Jews continue to live in Babylon? Mordecai represented the majority of the Jews who chose to continue to live in Babylon even after they were given the opportunity to leave when the Babylonian captivity ended. They could have returned to Israel and served God in their own land. The Jews had been secularized and had lost their vision of God's plan for their lives and for their nation and they were trying to blend in as best as they could. This gives us the context of the spiritual condition of Mordecai and those Jews who chose to continue to live in Babylon at the beginning of the book of Esther. The Jews had a defeated mentality and struggled to survive the hardships of life without any real hope of living fruitful, faith-filled, overcoming lives. So we see here this, so basically the Jews who are living in, continue to live in Babylon were backslidden. There are four books that almost didn't make it into the Old Testament canon of Scripture. Ecclesiastes, because it was too dark. Song of Solomon, because it was too explicit. Ezekiel, because it was too weird. And Esther, because God's name is not mentioned once. There are at least four things that are unique about the book of Esther. One, God is... Prayer is not mentioned once. Two, the name of God is not mentioned once. Three, although God is not mentioned in the book of Esther, one cannot help but come away with a distinct impression that God is involved in every detail of the story. In fact, as a young Christian, I read the book of Esther, and I thought, hey, that's a wonderful story. But if somebody said, do you know God's name is not mentioned once, I would have been surprised. Because when you read through it, God's Handiwork is seen through the whole book. But prayer in God's name is not mentioned once. Because the book speaks about God's providence working behind the scenes. And the fourth point, there are five unique acrostics found in the book of Esther that reveal God's divine hand of providence. These five acrostics act almost like God's fingerprints. What is an acrostic? 
An acrostic is a series of words in which certain letters, such as the first letter in each word, form a word or message. An example of an acrostic would be fear, false evidence appearing real. So that phrase, false evidence appearing real, if you took each of the first letters, it produces the word fear. That's an acrostic. The rabbis have identified eight acrostics of God's divine name, Yahweh, found in the Old Testament. Four of those eight occurrences are found in the book of Esther. The other four occurrences are in Chronicles 116, uh, Psalm 96, Isaiah 45, and 1 Kings 8, for those who want to explore that more. The fifth acrostic found in Esther reveals a remarkable name, Eiyah, meaning in Hebrew, I am. So we see these five acrostics that have been embedded and hidden in, this, in the book of Esther. The first two acrostics are formed by the first letters of the word. The last three acrostics are formed by the last letters of the words. The reason for this grouping is that the third acrostic marks a turning point in the events of the story. The third, fourth, and fifth acrostics show that the plans of the enemy are unraveling as God reveals and carries out his plan of deliverance. So you'll see a marked change that occurs. Every acrostic with the name Yahweh, spoken by a Gentile, is spelled backwards. And every acrostic with the name Yahweh, spoken by a Jew, is spelled forwards. The unbelieving Gentiles were unaware of the divine hand of God working behind the scenes directing the outcome. In other words, every time a Gentile said something in the book of Esther and it had an acrostic, the name of Yahweh is spelled backwards. Do you know why? Because they're not aware that God is actually working and even using them to bring about his purposes. But God is. The believing Jews were looking with eyes of faith for God to deliver them, deliver them from their enemies and restore his purposes for their lives and nation. And that's why every time a word is spoke, an acrostic is spoken by a Jewish person, the name of God is spelled forward. In each acrostic, the four words that form the acrostic are in consecutive order. Each acrostic, except the first one, they form a thought complete in itself. In other words, every acrostic, when you take the four words that form that acrostic, make a complete thought except the first one, and there's a reason for that. The four acrostics of the name Yahweh found in the book of Esther. Here's another pattern. The first acrostic is spelled backwards. The second acrostic is spelled forwards. The third acrostic is spelled backwards. The fourth acrostic is spelled forwards. The first acrostic contains words spoken about a Gentile queen, Queen Vashti. The second acrostic contains words spoken by a Jewish queen, Queen Esther. The third acrostic contains words spoken by Haman. And the fourth acrostic contains words spoken about Haman. We can see that the acrostics are not randomly scattered throughout the book of Esther. Instead, they are strategically and purposefully placed by God in specific places in the text to produce distinct patterns revealing God's providential hand at work. In other words, these acrostics aren't just there, they're there in very clear and specific orders. 
Esther chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now it came to pass in the days of Azarias, this was Azarias who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Azarias sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel. The story begins with a Gentile king reigning over a great kingdom which, was, which would have included the land of Israel. The Jews were seen as just one of a number of insignificant people groups under the subjection of the Persian Empire. Their lack of importance is seen in that they were not even mentioned by name at the beginning of the story. As the story began, the Jews were not even seen to have enough relevance to even have them mentioned. In Esther chapter 10, verse 3, For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Azarias and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. At the end of the story, God had elevated his people into a position of great importance, prominence, and power. The beginning of the story, they were insignificant, not even noticed. At the end, they were in authority and power. Esther chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. That in the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all his officials and servants. The powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the province being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. The story begins with a feast given by a pagan king to the glory of a pagan kingdom. Esther 9.22 As the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them, and from mourning to a holiday, and that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. The story ends with a feast celebrated by the Jews to the glory of their God and his wonderful deliverance and victory. The Jews were now rejoicing that God had taken them from being an oppressed and powerless people to a people who had overcome their adversaries and were now ruling over those who had once oppressed them. Isn't that wonderful, the patterns we see in the book of Esther? From the book of Esther, we see this beautiful symmetry. As we study the book of Esther, we will see how God, through his providential hand, took the Jews from being oppressed and downtrodden to a people filled with faith who stood boldly and confidently against their enemies. You know, sometimes we can feel overwhelmed by our circumstances and say, God, where are you in all this? Uh, the book of Esther is a wonderful book to study and meditate on when we're facing circumstances that seem overwhelming. Chapter 1 begins with King Azarias putting on a great feast lasting 180 days to display the glory of his kingdom. Esther 1 verse 2. In those days when King Azarias sat on the throne of his kingdom, he made a feast. He showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of all his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all. And then continue on in verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. 
Therefore the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. On the last day of the last week of the feast, of the king's 180-day feast, the king commanded his queen to come dressed in her royal apparel to parade herself before his half-intoxicated guests. Queen Vashti, feeling belittled, refused to do so, and the king, feeling humiliated, reacted with an outburst of anger. There it was. The king was showing his great power for 180 days, and then he calls for his queen to come and show her off to all her show him show herself off to all the guests, and she refuses. And he, what a way to ruin a party! So he is infuriated. So in First Corinthians, sorry, Esther 1:13. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law because she did not obey the command of King Azarias brought to her by the eunuchs? The king called his royal advisors and sought counsel as what to do about Queen Vashti. Verses 19 and 20. And this is their advice. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered that Vashti shall come no more before King Azarias. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. When the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. His advisors told the king that if he failed to deal with the queen severely, it would incite all the wives in his kingdom to disrespect their husbands. Their advice, they advised him to pass a royal edict which could not be altered, saying Vashti would no longer be queen and that she would never again be allowed in the king's presence. Verse 20 contains the first acrostic. It is spoken by one of the king's advisors and contains the divine name of Yahweh spelled backward using the first letters of each of the four words. Esther 1 verse 20. And when the king's edict which he will make is heard through all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands and great and small. So it and all the wives shall give are four Hebrew words in consecutive order that spell the name Yahweh backwards, using the first letters. This is the only acrostic that does not form a complete thought. Many have argued that it was inappropriate for the king to make such an immodest request of his wife. Others have argued that the queen should have been more tactful and respectful in her refusal. This first acrostic does not form a complete thought on its own because the quality of the advice by the king's advisors is not what is being addressed. Its point was that Vashti was deposed to make room for Esther. The scripture is not making a statement about husband and wife relationships, but about God's sovereignty to place people in positions of authority and to remove them. This is not about whether the king should have been more reasonable or whether Vashti should have been more respectful. It demonstrates God's foreknowledge and sovereignty in preparing the way for him to meet a pending future need that had not yet become apparent. So it was preparing the way for God to put into position those who needed to be put in position. Verse 
So this is not about husband-wife relationships. And if there is a husband here who would think that this is the way you will treat your wife, remember, you're not the king and you will be deposed. <laughs> so this is not about how husbands should treat wives. It's about God moving one person out to place another person in for a future need that God foresees but no one, sees else, uh, no one else sees. God foresees the needs before they arise and provides for them. Jehovah Jireh, God sees. God provides. God's providence. Esther chapter 2, verse, starting at verse 1. After these things, when the wrath of the king Azariah subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Then let the young woman who pleased the king be queen instead of Vashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. When the king cooled down, he felt lonely and missed his beautiful queen. However, the king's trusted advisors had the perfect solution. Gather the most beautiful virgins in his kingdom to his palace. Then let the king have a one-night fling with each one of them, and the one who ravishes his heart will rep replace King Vashti as queen. Of course, the king was delighted with his advice and probably thought, that's why I pay them the big bucks. <laughs> in chapter 2 of Esther, we see God's providential hand putting into place the next piece of the puzzle required for his plan of deliverance and redemption. Esther was chosen as one of the virgins to be taken into the king's palace. Esther 2, verses 7 and 8. Esther obtained favor in the sight of Haggai, the keeper of the women, verses 8 and 9. Why did Esther find favor amongst from all the other women who were brought to the palace? It says, because any of the women, when they came, they could ask whatever they want. For that year, they, however they wanted to be treated, I'd like to have this and I'd like to have that. But you know what, what Esther did? She said to Haggai, the keeper of the king's women, you know what's best. Whatever you think I need, I'll take that. And then after that year of preparation, when she came before the king, it says that every woman could decide how, what she'd wear and, and all the details. But you know what it said about Esther? Esther said, said to Haggai, whatever you know, whatever you think would be best, I'll wear. See, because Haggai knew the heart of the king. He knew the color of the dresses the king liked. He knew the type of dress he liked. He knew how her hair should be. Um, he knew the type of perfume. In other words, when she came into the king, his heart was ravished because she was dressed exactly like Haggai knew the king loved. And just as a, a small diversion, Haggai is a prophetic picture of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is preparing a bride for Jesus. And the Holy Spirit knows what we need and what delights God's heart. And so as believers, when we submit to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he then begins to adorn us. And sometimes we need to go through times of preparation of cleansing. That's called trials. Sometimes we can go through to pleasant times that sweetness. That's also wonderful. But the Holy Spirit is there to prepare us, 
but he won't push himself on us. We need to be saying, Lord, do in my life what you know is best, what will bring the light to your heart. And that's why Esther found favor in the eyes of the king because she had prepared herself exactly what delighted God, the heart of the king. Esther's submission and humility enabled her to find favor with both Haggai and the king himself. The king loved Esther above all the other women. She obtained grace and favor in his sight, and he chose her to be queen. In Esther 2, verse 10, Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. Another detail. When Esther was chosen queen, her identity as a Jewess was hidden. Why did Mordecai command Esther not to reveal that she was from the lineage of the Jews? Why do you think that? Some may argue that Mordecai had received divine revelation that Esther needed to hide her lineage until it was time to deal with the future crisis. However, I think the answer lies, lies simply in the spiritual condition of Mordecai and the Jews who continued to live in Babylon. Mordecai was fearful and possibly ashamed of his Jewish heritage. And that's why I believe he said, don't tell anybody. Don't tell them you're Jewish. Don't tell them I'm Jewish and we don't know one another. In other words, it wasn't because he had this great divine revelation. It was he was afraid of being identified as a Jew and what the persecution would be. And he said, just, just don't say anything. Mordecai had lost sight of God's purpose for his life and for his people. And this was reflected in a heart filled with, with fear and uncertainty. He was not confident that God would lead or protect him. Christians who are not confident in God's leading and protection are afraid, or at least ashamed, to openly share their faith in Christ. You know, in North America, as Christians, we generally do a poor job of sharing our faith personally. And, and maybe it's a stigma, maybe it's whatever it is, People don't tend to want to share their faith. There's not that bold. That means we vote and preach at people's face, but that we let people know we're Christians. You know, many times when I meet strangers, um, you know, we'll have a conversation, and they'll say, what do you do? I say, well, I tell, them, I tell them two things about myself. I tell them that I'm Jewish, and I tell them that I'm a pastor. And that either begins a conversation or ends it. But... But the point is, but I just throw it out there. And when somebody wants to, when I start sharing the gospel, I don't say, you know, Jesus died for your sins and you need to be saved. You know what I do? I talk about my relationship with God as not only being a very natural thing, but as if they're already believers too. I'll even mention, well, you know, I was praying one time and the Lord did this and that. I'll just say it as if it's normal. Not like I'm trying to convince you. You know, God answers prayer. I talk to them as if they already are believers, so it doesn't feel like a confrontation. But just like it's a very, I speak to them as if it's a very natural thing to have a relationship with God in a very personal way. But anyways, but God was use, wants us to use opportunities to just very gently just let people know we're followers of Jesus. Just because God used the fact that Esther concealed her heritage does not mean that Mordecai's advice was motivated by a heart of faith. You know, God will even use our mistakes if we submit to him later, right? So it wasn't like, oh, that was the right thing to do. 
That was because of their spiritual condition. But God will even use the mistakes you've made. If there are things that have happened in your life that you regret, you know something? Give them over to God and let him bring redemption to those mistakes. Esther chapter 2, verse 21. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthin and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Azarias. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. The third piece of the puzzle was added to God's providential plan. Mordecai, Esther's uncle, happened to overhear two of the king's doorkeepers plotting to assassinate the king. Mordecai reported to Esther, who in the name of Mordecai reported to the king, and the king in turn gave the two guards a severance package. God's divine hand is seen when Mordecai happened to be in the very place to overhear the plan to assassinate the king. See how these un seemingly unrelated happenings is actually God's hand weaving these things together. God's divine hand is seen in the fact that Mordecai was not rewarded for his faithfulness and loyalty to the king at that time. In other words, it was that he wasn't rewarded was part of God's plan. What would appear on the surface as Mordecai being treated unfairly was actually God's plan to pave the way for his divine deliverance. And as we read the story later, we'll see how that fact that he was not rewarded, he was not treated fairly, was actually God's divine plan for the future deliverance. So when there are things that happen in your life, in my life, that seem unfair... If we don't see God's divine providence hand somehow working out not knowing what, we will become bitter and angry and hostile and frustrated. But if we say, God, I don't know why you've allowed this, but I am trusting you that you have a purpose for this, then you will start to see thanksgiving come forth and God can take that and weave those things for his glory to bring forth a beautiful tapestry of his purposes. Esther chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Azarias promoted Haman, the son of Hamadetha, the Agite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. Between chapter 2 and chapter 3, five years have passed. During that time, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, had risen to power and prominence with the king. We see a biblical pattern. Before God's deliverance and victory came to fruition, circumstances often appear to be darker, more dire, and even hopeless. So we see that things got worse. All of a sudden, there's a man who has risen to power, second to the king only, who will be turning out to be an enemy of the Jews wanting to destroy them. Things are getting worse. Many times in our lives, when things, first of all, appear to be more and more difficult, God is actually working behind the scenes to bring forth a victory. But many times Christians become discouraged 
and disheartened and walk away from God and trusting him. But the pattern we see over and over again says sorrow, we sow in sorrow and tears and we reap in joy. Sorrow comes in the evening, but joy in the morning. It talks about birth pangs. In birth, there's pain, but then there's a joy a child is born. And so we see this pattern. So if you're in the midst of painful times, say, God, I'm trusting you that you're working through these times to bring forth a great victory. As Jesus hung dying on the cross, it appeared that Satan's plan had prevailed. But in just a few short days, the greatest victory of all eternity took place, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, when Christ hung on the cross, it looked like everything was lost. It looked like everything was bleak. It looked like everything was horrible. But in that was God's providence because three days later, Christ would be resurrected and the greatest victory of eternity took place. As followers of Jesus Christ, we do not let the apparent bleakness of personal circumstances or the deteriorating global condition of mankind cause you to falter in your confidence in God's faithfulness and victory. Keep your eyes on Jesus and his promises. Jesus said that as the time for his return draws near, there will be an increase in wars and political instability along with an increase in plagues and natural disasters. But he encourages his followers not to become fearful or disheartened because soon he will return and bring an end to all the evil and unrighteousness. In other words, you know, Christians sometimes become bitter when you start to see unrighteous laws being passed, when you see things happening that are so wrong, and we can become bitter. But, but God has said these things will happen so we will not grow disheartened, and that we will pray so that we will see God's purposes done. In other words, when you look around, if things were getting better and better and better, I would get discouraged. You know why? That means God's word is not true. But God's word is true. It says iniquity will increase. It says all these things. It's happening. But he says, don't be afraid, but be encouraged, for this will be an opportunity for the gospel to go forth in greater ways. In the story, the situation seemed to grow worse as Haman, a picture of the Antichrist, became the second most powerful person in the kingdom next to the king himself. As the king exalted Haman above all, the, all his other princes. Esther 7 verse 6 says this. And Esther said, the adversary of the enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Haman the wicked, this title has the Hebrew numerical value of 666, the number of Antichrist. So at the end of the story, where we see that she points to Haman and says, Haman the wicked. That, that, those Hebrew words mean add up to 666. In fact, if you study Haman and you study the Antichrist in the end times, there are at least six similarities between Haman and the Antichrist, but I won't go into that now. Esther chapter 3, verse 2. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when, he had, when they spoke to him daily, he would not listen to them, and they told it to Haman to see whether... Mordecai's word would stand, for Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. 
we can see that some remarkable changes had occurred in Mordecai's heart during the five years since Esther became queen. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. A new level of faith and boldness had sprung up in Mordecai's heart. He was no longer a coward fearing to disclose his faith. Before, he would gladly have compromised to avoid hardship or persecution. But now he stood against the spirit of the world and the spirit of Antichrist. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. Previously, Mordecai hid his true identity as a Jew and instructed Esther to do the same. Now he boldly declared that he was a Jew, although it might have caused him great personal loss. Something had changed within his heart. And maybe because he began to see how God had placed Esther there. His heart was filled with faith and no longer was ashamed. And no longer would he compromise. You know, I remember my brother one time was, was sharing, taught, having a conversation with a rabbi. And the rabbi was hearing about our faith in, in Christ. And the rabbi said, well, I guess that means you're a Messianic Jew. And... My brother said this, yes, as long as you understand that means I'm a Christian. Because a lot of times Jews, when they receive Jesus, don't want to identify with Christians. No, we're still Jewish, so we're just Messianic Jews. He said, yes, I'm a Messianic Jew, as long as you understand that I'm a Christian. Now, that might be offensive to the rabbi. That might cause more persecution. But what Harvey was saying is basically, yes, we're Messianic Jews, but we are Christians and we identify with the church. We're not going to hide our identity as being part of the body of Christ as part of the church, which is both neither Jew nor Gentile, but one new man in Christ. It would have been easier to kind of say, well, you know, yes, we're Messianic Jews, and we're, you know, but we, we said, yes, we're Messianic Jews, but we are Christians. They told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's word would stand. This was an open conflict between, between God's word and the word of the Antichrist. This is the conflict of the book of Esther. Whose word would prevail? God's word or the Antichrist's word? Esther 3 verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead... Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Azarias, the people of Mordecai. Haman's plan, as a reflection of the Antichrist plan, was much bigger than just killing Mordecai or even every Jewish person. Satan was actually working behind the scenes through Haman to annihilate the entire nation of Israel, every single Jew. Satan planned a preemptive strike so Jesus, the Messiah, could not be, would not be born into the world to redeem mankind from the power of sin and death and the devil. In other words, what was Satan's plan? If every Jew had been destroyed, Jesus could never be born. Because God had promised Abraham through his seed would come the Messiah. And so there was Satan behind it saying, he will destroy every Jew that lives. There'll be not one Jew left. And that way the Messiah cannot come and mankind cannot be redeemed. The Antichrist is seeking not only, not only to imitate Christ, but to eliminate Christ. If you see people who are an occult, 
in witchcraft, into all these things. It's the Antichrist spirit because it's a false anointing trying to replace faith in the true one, the anointed one, Christ, and replace it into the demonic. Esther 3.7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Azarias, they cast poor, that is, the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Haman cast lots to choose the month when the Jews would be destroyed. To Haman, it was simply a, a roll of the dice to randomly choose a date to destroy God's people. But the roll of the dice was actually God's providential hand choosing the date when God would deliver Israel from Haman's wicked plans and destroy Israel's enemies. The month of Adar was chosen. Adar in Hebrew means glorious. What seemed like a random date was the one God handpicked to become a day of celebration when God would give Israel victory over her enemies and those who sought to destroy her. See, Esther is an important book as we study the end times because it helps us understand that in all the plans that look like worse and worse and worse and worse, God is actually preparing his deliverance. So Haman randomly chose a date using lots to say, yeah, that's the date, not realizing that God handpicked that date, the glorious date, the date for deliverance. What the, Jews meant, sorry, what the enemy meant for evil, God used for good. The very date that Haman had chosen to destroy Israel, God chose to defeat Haman and all the enemies of the Jews and bring about a great victory. And this is the power of redemption. Now, you, you might say, well, what happens if all the Jews had all gone out of Babylon 60 years before and returned back to their land? Well, you know something? This would never have happened in the first place because... Mordecai, Haman and Mordecai, this whole conflict wouldn't have developed. So because of their disobedience, they were in Babylon. But then because they repented, God used that to bring a great victory against the enemies of God and against the enemies of Israel. So even when we have failed, when we turn to God, he will use the situation we're in to actually bring victory. He will take the situation you find yourself in because of bad choices or because of bad choices other people have made. But when you turn to him, he will actually take it and redeem it and bring forth victory in your life and glory to his name. Esther, verse, chapter 3, starting at verse 8. Then Haman said to King Azarias, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadeth, the Agkite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. The plot thickens, and the circumstances seem to grow darker, more sinister, and more hopeless, as the king gave Haman unrestricted power and authority to carry out all his wishes against the Jews and to utterly destroy them. 
under the instruction of Haman, a royal decree went out by courier into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. Haman seemed unstoppable. Through the millennia, Hitler and others have plotted genocide against the Jewish people every time God intervened in what appeared to be hopeless situations. The modern state of Israel was birthed out of the ashes of the Holocaust. Do you realize that? See, before Hitler came to power, many of the Jews were happy living in their, dispersed amongst the nations. In fact, some Jews that lived in Germany were so loyal to Germany that they said, Berlin is our Jerusalem. But after what Hitler did was so horrendous, the Jews recognized, we must have our own land again. We can no longer trust the Gentile nations. We no longer can trust others to protect us because they're the ones that may destroy us. And so that impetus drove them on. And in 1948, God established the land of Israel once again after 2,000 years. Out of the ashes of the Holocaust, what Hitler meant to destroy, what God used to bring forth and rebirth the nation of Israel. Why has the devil tried to destroy the Jewish people over the millennia? Before Christ's birth, it was to prevent the birth of the Messiah so mankind would have no savior. However, another reason, I believe, is to prove God a liar. God has many as yet unfulfilled promises for the natural descendants of Abraham. However, God has preserved his people and has even restored them into the land he promised them. Ultimately, we will see all the promises that God spoke to Abraham concerning his natural descendants fulfilled. In other words, if, God, if, the, if the people of Israel were destroyed, that means God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be unfulfilled, which means God was powerless and he was not honest. But guess what? God has preserved his people and he's fulfilling his promises. And he will fulfill every promise that he spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because he is a God of promises. Next week, as we further study the book of Esther, it will become apparent how God had been working behind the scenes all along to defeat the plans of the enemy and bring deliverance, freedom, and victory to his people. Although we don't always see or understand how God is working, believe this. He is always working. Our part is to be willing to surrender fully to the will of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit so God can do his part and bring forth his purpose in our lives. No matter what we face, no matter how many times we failed, God is always working on our behalf to heal our hurts, free us from our past failures, and give us victory over all those things that have defeated and oppressed us so we can over, live overcoming lives. Now, as we come to the end, as we look at this, I'm, I'm, stopping the minute, I'm stopping the message here. And you go, why would I stop the message at this point? For two reasons. Sometimes in our lives, we're at a point where everything looks dark, where we don't see a way of victory yet. We don't see a way of deliverance. We don't see how God is going to come through. But in those times, we can wait on God knowing, God, you're working behind the scenes, even though I don't see it. 
And so that's why I'm stopping at this point so that we can say that even in the bleakest point of the story, God is at work preparing for a victory and for a deliverance. The second reason I stopped here is the message was getting too long. So anyways, we're going to pray right now. Hallelujah. Could we all stand, please? Father, I thank you so much for your love, for your faithfulness, Lord. God, we know that each one of us, we've had failures, we've made mistakes, we've had bad judgment, Lord. But I thank you for Jesus. Oh, God. And in the midst of whatever struggles we would be struggling with, Father, you have not given up on us. You will never leave us nor forsake us. And thank you, Father, that you go before us, Lord. Lord, I lift up every brother and sister in Christ here this morning, Father. You know their needs. Those that are are right now walking closely with you and things are going well, and others where we're still struggling, Lord. But we all have ebbs and flows. Some days are easy and sometimes are difficult, Father. But we learn that we are trusting in you, Lord. We're learning to trust in you, Father. I pray for the Holy Spirit to encourage every brother and sister in Christ that is in this place this morning, Father. To encourage them. Encourage me, Lord, that we can trust you, Father. That we can trust you. And teach us to be rejoicing even when we don't see yet the victory. Even when we don't yet see the deliverance. Even when we don't see what you're doing. Knowing that you are doing it. And that the plans of the enemy are destroyed. And that you're going to bring forth that victory. And that the Holy Spirit is moving. Is moving in our lives. Is moving in our circumstances. Yes, Lord. And as we will learn to submit and surrender to you, Lord. And let go. Hallelujah. Then we will see your power and your redemption manifest, Father. In your way. In your perfect time, Father. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. And if there's anyone here who's never received,